Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Richard, welcome to the War Room. Good to be here, Ryan. Okay, so you have, as I mentioned in the introduction, a book called Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. It's the, it's the last line, the birth of a university that caught my attention. <laughs> the other things kind of go together. Okay, murder, deceit, spirits, but the birth of a university is not where I expected this this title to go. And so it caught my attention. So what have I missed here? Because this was fascinating. Yeah, um, it's not what you expect from universities, but I'll add here that in the, in the Gilded Age, late 19th, early 20th century, Jane Stanford was not the only person who founded a university who managed to get murdered. Um, Rice University, the founder there, got murdered too. But you know what you're missing is um, something that people have been gone out of their way to disguise, that Jane Stanford was murdered. She died of strychnine poisoning in 1905. Although if you read anything released by Stanford University, you would never learn that. And if you took a tour of Stanford University in which they recount its history, you would never learn that. Um, even though it was all over the papers and even though a coroner's jury ruled that she had died by strychnine poisoning, that has been pretty thoroughly covered up until relatively recently. Okay, so let's, there's, there's two things there. There's the poison, I'll talk about that in a second. But first, who... Who is or who was Jane Stanford? Um, you know, who, who, who was she and what was her status in society? Okay, Jane Stanford was probably the richest woman in San Francisco in 1905 when she died. She was the heir to the Leland Stanford's fortune, which came from the Southern Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad. Um, these were the railroads which were denounced as the octopus in Frank Norris's novels of the um, late 19th century and were um, pretty much the most hated corporations in California for which there was a great deal of competition in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and Stanford in effect was um, laundering his reputation by endowing Stanford University. He died and for the last 10 years, his wife for all practical purposes controlled the purse of the university. Yeah. So. Let's talk about the railroads for a second there, because we just had on a uh, coordinate episode the other day um, about um, about the, the Gilded Age and, and the railroads and um, some of the, the stuff going on during that period. So it, it's quite more controversial maybe than I remember growing up in school. So um, were these railroads participating in some of these uh, paper trade uh, with the stocks and manipulating the stocks? Were they just controversial because they're taking land? Why were they controversial? Um, they're controversial because they made a whole series of promises they failed to fulfill. Um, one of the things was they're supposed to um, provide cheaper transportation, but the way they manipulated rates, they very often provided more expensive transportation than you could get by shipping things on steamships, for example. Um, they also took out a loan from the federal government, which allowed the Central Pacific to be built, and they refused to pay back the loan. Um, they manipulated their stocks and bonds to make sure that they made 
fortunes while investors often lost out. They bribed congressmen. Leland Stanford became a U.S. senator. He bought his way into office. I could go on and on and on, but that's essentially how they operated. And so the average citizen, if you're during this period and you said Jane Stanford, they would have said what? Um, they would have said two things. First of all, is that her fortune was ill-gotten. And the second thing was that they really believed that, oh, even though the fortune was ill-gotten, it was now going to be devoted to the good of the children of California, as the Stanford's claimed. They were right about the first one. The second one was not so clear because it was never that clear that all of the Stanford fortune was going to go to Stanford University. So there they pretty much bought a story that those in the know, those who ran the university, realized that until her death, it was unclear what was going to be the fate of Stanford University, whether it was going to acquire all the Stanford fortune, and indeed whether it would continue to exist in its present form. So they would have admired her for um, what they thought she was doing, but they would have known full well where the money came from. Now, was the university um, stuff, was that tied to the death of their son? Or is that separate, unrelated? Oh, yeah. No, it's it, very much. So the, the Stanford University, its full name is Leland Stanford Jr., University, and it's a memorial to their dead son who died of typhoid at 14 when he was in Italy. And they were honestly bereft. Um, this is a university that's born in grief. Um, it's born in a common kind of grief at, during this period because people lost children in just um, shocking numbers. Jane Stanford never really recovered from the death of her child. And that's what turned her into a spiritualist. She wanted to communicate first with her dead child, later with her dead husband. That's what brought her some relief because she really thought she could communicate. Um, with the dead. So the full name of Stanford is what again? Say that again for me. Leland Stanford Junior University. I have never heard that ever. Yeah, most people don't know that. But if you go back and look at the official documents, that's what it is. Have they changed it now to, to make it to say Stanford like a DBA type situation or? No, people abbreviate it. I mean, people always colloquially refer to it as Stanford University, but its proper name is Leland Stanford Junior University. Okay, I bet I could go around to Stanford campus and like make a billion dollars just asking students <laughs> what the name of the university yeah. is. There, there's all kinds of questions you could ask Stanford students and make a billion dollars. <laughs> that is that is wild. Okay, so their son dies of typhoid. No, no mystery around that. That's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Um, people are dying of typhoid. And again, the death of a child is not unusual in the Gilded Age. Okay, and so that spurs her into, I think you said, uh, mysticism, and then wanting to connect with her son, and then eventually the university. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stories that come out about it. The one that appears to be true is that Leland Stanford, the father, was doing a death watch over his son, and he dozed off while his son was dying. And um, he dreamed that um, Leland Jr. appeared to him and said, even though 
my I will not get your fortune. You should devote your fortune instead to the good of the children of California. And when he awoke, his son was dead and he took this as a visitation. He took this as a sign. And it's another one of the things that drive both him and more particularly Jane into spiritualism. So that's, you know, that's the origin story of the university. And there's a great deal of truth to it. Mm. And so where was Leland, uh, the father, where was he educated at? He really wasn't. He, Leland Stanford failed at virtually everything he did until he fell in with Collis P. Huntington. Um, Collis P. Huntington of the Associates of the Central Pacific Railroad was the smart one, but they merged their money in a way that even though they all came to hate each other, they could not be rid of each other. So their money remains merged until after the death of all of them, really. Um, and then it's finally going to be broken apart. But that's, you know, that's where Stanford gets his money. Before that, he failed as a lawyer. He failed as a merchant. He failed as a bar owner. He failed partially as a politician, though Huntington got him elected governor of California. But Stanford's success has to do with the luck of falling in with a really smart, really ruthless, really corrupt guy. And so all these failures um, that uh, Leland Stanford has, is it because he's a corrupt person throughout his life? Is it just because he's a lazy? Is it not talent? Why is he continually failing? Well, you know, his partners thought he was lazy. Um, and he is good at one thing. He's really good at r raising trotting horses. He is probably the best trotting horse stable in the country um, in, by the 1890s. He's really good at that. But as his partners say, he'd rather be at the races than doing business. Um, so he's corrupt enough, but they're all corrupt. But he's, he's not the smart one. He's not the smartest tool in the shed. It's pretty much Huntington and Mark Hopkins who will get incredibly frustrated with him saying it's something he probably could have done but he's too lazy and he's too interested in other things to do it and the other reason they come to despise him is that he starts cheating them their their general rule with each other is they would cheat other people but the promise was they wouldn't cheat each other leland stanford violated that rule so if he's kind of a he has the horses and he's kind of a hack besides that how does how does he get involved with these people who are at least successful swindlers well what they are is they get to invest in a transcontinental railroad at a time when nobody in their right mind would build a railroad across the continent because there's no business so all the people who are familiar with railroads will back away even though the government's offering considerable subsidies no experienced railroad man will take it that leaves the door open for those um, who are willing to take a chance on it and speculate on it, and particularly when they can speculate with other people's money. The big four put virtually no money into this railroad. They're, they're operating on money, loans from the government, promises of land grants that they turn into bonds and then they sell, um, stock sales, bribes to congressmen. So that's how they get in. Stanford could not have done this by himself. Huntington is the brains behind it. But it's the four of them who do it and they pool their money in such a way that it's a complicated story, but they can't really get out, um, even though at various times some of them want to get out and they stick together over the next 30 years. When we look at corruption today and I hear these Gilded Age stories, which is worse? Is there more corruption today or more back then? Um, they're both, they're different kinds of corruption, but they're 
we, we, we happen to live in probably the only time in which American politics is as corrupt as it was in the Gilded Age. The only time in which money can buy politics. The only time in which many Americans believe that their government works for the good of corporations rather than the good of them. The only time when um, people believe that essentially what will get you into office is the ability to buy office. The cynicism about politics is matched at the same rate um, as the cynicism of the Gilded Age. And what's now true too is that the only period in history in which people are, are voting at this rate we're voting today because voting rates have gone up was also the Gilded Age. So it's sort of a paradox. Mm. And so what was Jane's, Jane's thought about her husband? You mentioned he's failed a bunch of times. Uh, he gets tied in sideways. What was her ethical uh, or Problems she doesn't had. she doesn't say much and once he's dead she sees her job as protecting his reputation mm. um she destroys his papers for example um leland stanford's papers are gone almost certainly jane's the one who destroyed them she did it because she knew what was in those papers there was all kinds of stuff that would convict him of corruption but unfortunately it's not just in his papers it's in a whole bunch of people's papers so destroying his doesn't do that much good um as a matter of fact what it does is it, it takes away his ability to answer and show other people are corrupt. But she's protection mode. She's protection mode for her son, who she adores, and her husband. And that's what she does. And until he dies, she does not take a major role in much of anything. She comes into full public view and really becomes a powerful woman once Leland Stanford Sr. dies. Okay. And then, so her life then and the spotlight is about a 12-year window right right and so she emerges let me ask maybe this way based upon what happened after his death how do we then try to piece together who she was when he was alive because she comes out and she's about to make these moves and this this you know she's covering up for him um what can we glean from her his post-death actions about her during his life? Um, one thing you can glean is she's probably more capable than her husband. Um, Collis P. Huntington says that. Um, Collis P. Huntington says, you know, she's, she's a tougher opponent and a better manager than her husband, husband was. But the way she has to learn how to be that is because Leland Stanford leaves her with a disaster. When he dies, um, he's done two things. First of all, he has not paid back the loan owed to the U.S. government, and they sue his estate. So she finds that um, she is now being sued by the United States government to pay back more money than is liquid in the estate. Secondly, she discovers that all the founding documents of Stanford University are basically illegal, that for legal purposes, there is no Stanford University. And third, she finds out the government, the economy has just um, sunk into a depression, the worst in American history up to that time. And there's a good chance that the source of all of our money, the Southern Pacific Railroad, is going to go under and is going to go bankrupt. So she has to step into an absolute disaster. And to her credit, she saves Stanford University. The lawsuit doesn't fail, but it says Stanford doesn't have to pay back the money. The railroad corporation has to pay back the money. So she dodges that bullet. And then she goes about, um, she isn't responsible for the Southern Pacific um, being saved during the depression. Huntington does that, but she holds on to her stock. So she still has that stock go up 
in value after the Southern Pacific is saved. And she will get involved with George Crothers, which is another interesting story. And he's the man who will amend the California Constitution to make Stanford University a legal entity. So she comes out of what is an immense crisis looking pretty good. Well, that's exactly where I was going to ask you next is, is she, um, being the, the, the era of history we're talking about, is she um, able to do this because the laws were poorly written or was she pulling strings to get people to bend the law in her favor? And it sounds like at least partially she's getting strings pulled. She's having strings pulled. I mean, she she is intervening in the Supreme Court case in ways that would now be seen as corrupt and illegal. She knows some of the justices. She said she's lobbying Supreme Court justices. Some of them have um, been involved with the railroad. It's the kind of stuff that would look very fishy today. So the Supreme Court decision seems um, pretty odd at the time. And what she manages to do with it is to get it to fall in her favor. She still has problems, but that looks pretty fishy. The California Constitution, Crothers pulls a lot of strings to get that done. And the fact is that one of the things they argue, both with the Supreme Court and with the California, is look, you know, no matter what you think about the legality of what they've done, they've founded a university here and they're offering free tuition. So pretty much, yeah, it's illegal, but it's best to have the institution so cut us a break. So they, they do, and they get a constitutional amendment and it's approved by the voters. So that goes through too. So all of those things work out well, but she is well connected. She's very well connected and that has a lot to do with how all of this takes place. How do you have an illegal university? Okay, what California has is a set of rules about what trusts are, how a trust can be created. Those rules are pretty straightforward. Leland Stanford violated virtually every one of them. So the funding of the university is going to be illegal. There's rules about how much money out of a will you can give to a university. It's about a third of the estate. They write wills in such a way that they are breaking down and giving those, um, giving more money through wills than they, they possibly can. And finally, there is a set of rules California has. If you're going to establish these kinds of institutions, you have to follow rules about how they're administered. And the, Cal and the Stanford founding documents violate virtually every one of them. So as George Crothers, when he comes in, he looks around and realizes, what a mess. This is inconceivable you could make such a mess, but they have. And he decides there's no sense trying to repair this one by one. We're just going to go to the Constitution. If it's unconstitutional, we'll amend the Constitution to make an exception for Stanford University. And that amendment is still in the Constitution. Wow. And, and I mean, Leland was governor and a state senator, so he should have been familiar <laughs> <laughs> the laws on some level it's stunning yeah he should have been but remember he, he's not working with Huntington on this one <laughs> he's on his own and as I say he's not the sharpest tool in the shed and he's very rich and like a lot of the very rich he thinks he can get away with it in the end he gets away with it wow <laughs> the gilded age it's like a gift that keeps on giving isn't it it certainly is how do you view the characters as a historian in this time? Because, you know, you're, you're hearing all this stuff and go, oh, my gosh, is this uh, not to make uh, not to, um, you know, um, diminish the, the wrong. But is this par for the course for how the high society was acting or was this an extreme act? No, this is pretty much par for the course. I mean, one of the things if you're going to study the rich in the Gilded Age and in any other period, 
you realize one of the criteria for getting rich is not being really smart or even necessarily really good at what you do. So the kinds of things I find here end up being, and it's terrible because Jane Stanford ends up being poisoned, but it's funny. I mean, it's the kind of stuff they do. It's just utterly ridiculous and they get away with most of it. Um, so what Leland Stanford does is not the genius of Leland Stanford, though people are praising his genius, praising his wealth. You get into the, um, the um, underbrush and this stuff and you just find out it's, it is a mess. It is just an astonishing realm of incompetency, but the university goes on. And it, just when you think this is it, this is gonna finally bring it down, it somehow stumbles through that and goes on to the next crisis, including the crisis of having to cover up the murder of its founder. Yeah, so how do you just, just on that, like how do you keep un, unpeeling the layers of the onion? Because it, it, this is one of those truth is stranger, stranger than fiction, but it's, it's a complicated mess it sounds like too. It, it was, and the, and the first thing I had to do was essentially follow the money because what I had to figure out is why would anybody cover up the murder of an elderly woman who is there at the same time praising as the mother of the university and as the good woman? So I had to figure out what's at stake here? You know, what's at stake for somebody to want to murder her? And I found many people with many reasons to want to murder her. But more than that, why would the university want to cover this up? And that led me deep into the financial arrangements of the university and all the things that people thought. And the basic thing they thought at the time was that Stanford's had given all of their money to the university, but they hadn't given all their money to the university. There were always strings attached and Crothers, who knows what's going on more than anybody else, is never sure until Jane Stanford dies that that fortune is going to go to the university. So the great fear is if she dies in such a way that will bring about people having to examine her death, which means examining her life, which means examining the university, the university can be in real trouble. They don't want that to happen. Yeah, especially in illegal university that, you know, barely got 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 put put into the spotlight i guess because of uh they changed the constitution so you don't want a whole lot of questions being asked i'm sure no and it, and the university spawns its own scandals there's the ross affair there's the gilbert affair the university is constantly in um the paper for doing things which appear to be illegal so illegality is all over this institution wow okay so the husband dies he was he was state senator when he dies correct yes Okay, so he dies. Uh, she begins to go through this process of covering up. Then you say that she's shrewd enough to maneuver some very difficult obstacles. But ultimately, you're arguing here that she's murdered. So she can't, she can't get it all the way done. What was her ultimate downfall? Well, the, the problem is, is that as she is, she's a spiritualist. Um, and she doesn't, she can't get beyond seeing the university as a bunch of employees. So she mm. begins to think that what she really wants the university to do over time is to become essentially a cult, um, to go through what, they, what she calls soul germ theory, that the university should be talking about the eternal life 
of the soul, which exists before a person's born. The soul grows greater as the person is embodied. But then after the person dies, the soul continues to grow and be educated. And she wants the um, university to teach this. She says she, the professors don't realize how important this is. And she's right. The professors don't realize this and they don't want any part of it. The other thing she does is she, having had Crothers clean up the charter, she starts changing it again. She starts giving these addresses, changing the way the university is going to work. So poor George Crothers, having just made the university legal, she goes about doing all these things which are illegal. So the university is constantly drifting back into legal troubles that Crothers wants to disguise or stop as much as possible. So having helped to fix things during the crisis, she immediately leads the university back into very, very troubled waters, both as an educational institution and financially. And when she doesn't like faculty, she has them fired, which makes Stanford University become the center of um, scandals over academic freedom. They cannot recruit good faculty because nobody in their right mind is going to go to a university where they think Stanford or the president, David Starr Jordan, can simply dismiss them at any moment because they've offended them in some way or don't like their ideas. So, yeah, what is the standing among academia at the time of this going on? Is Stanford, like it is today, really revered or is it up and coming? Like, what is it reviewed, viewed as? It's... It's seen as something of a joke, a very rich joke. It's seen as an attempt um, by a rare, very rich family to use their ill-gotten fortune to create a memorial to themselves. And much of early Stanford is all about the Stanfords. And it's also seen as a place which is going to be run by um, an elderly, very rich woman who has an idea about education, which is very different from the birth of new research universities, which is taking place at the time. So it is seen as someplace which is just as one time as Charles W. Eliot, the president of, of um, Harvard says, whatever happens at Stanford can't really harm other American universities because there's no other university like Stanford. I mean, it's, it's just crazy town in there. Yes. So that's, you know, that's what can partially protect it. Yeah, so it's not it's not like today. If you were to get a uh, professor a job as a professor in Stanford, it's it's a completely different feel. Um, and so, yeah, um, David Starr Jordan, the, the president, wants to turn it into a major research university, but he sees James Stanford as um, the leading obstacle to that. But at the same time, he can never offend James Stanford because she controls the money. Okay, and so. One of the things I'm curious about um, in general about people that are corrupt is it seems that even if they are shrewd, they seem to find themselves in problems later on because they buy into their own shrewdness, right? So they, they might they might navigate this stream here and get this problem resolved, but because they have you know lack of moral or ethics, they're ultimately going to make faux pas that are going to cost them later on. Is that is that generally true of people in the Gilded Age and people like uh, the Stanfords? Yeah, they, they are. And they, are, they, they figure two things, is that if they're corrupt, they figure everybody else is corrupt too. 
they figure everybody has their price. Um, and one of the things that's, that shocks the Stanford's is when they try to recruit a president to the university, they get, keep getting turned down. They raise the double the salary, still get turned down. That to them is sort of inconceivable that everybody doesn't have their price. And the second thing which is connected with that is, is as Bertha Berner, Jane Stanford's companion and secretary says, she realized that uh, money was power. And she realized that she could use her money to get virtually anything she wants. And it made very little difference to her whether she's using that money legally or whether she's using it illegally, because she figures even if she uses it illegally, she can use the money to escape the consequences of having um, done it illegally. For all the corruption of the Gilded Age, none of them went to jail. Um, so that's that's something that happens to the little people. They really do think that they the rules do not apply to them. If Jane Austen, if Jane Austen, Jane Stanford could talk to us today, would she be surprised that she was murdered? She was. I mean, that's that's the striking thing about her death. I mean, she thought, and I think she said this honestly, she thought, who could hate me? This is a woman who collected enemies like she collected jewelry. But she really honestly thought, who could possibly hate me? And the second thing is when she was poisoned, she knew she was poisoned. She's a spiritualist who um, never uses the word death. But her last words are, this is a terrible death to die. She knew she had been shot, been poisoned. So all of the horrors that somebody had gone out of their way, they poisoned her once, they followed her, poisoned her again, they succeeded and they killed her. She knew that as she died. How hard was it to go through the process of um, determining the possible suspects and, 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 and you know who's most likely to have done this? Well, you know, I, I had a great... Um, asset in that there's Stanley Cutler, who had been um, a, a taught at the Stanford Medical School, had gone through the medical records and established that Jane Stanford had died of strychnine poisoning, which the university had denied for over a century. Um, so I had good medical records and I had the coroner's jury saying she died of strychnine poisoning. But that's where he pretty much ended his investigation. I had to figure out, well, who could have done it and why? And my problem was that, you know, not that I couldn't find the suspect, it's that so many suspects. Her servants disliked her and resented her. David Starr Jordan, the president of the university, disliked her and resented her. Bertha Berner, who's often described as her closest friend and companion, had many reasons to dislike and resent her. And it just went on and on and on. I got this whole array of suspects. And so at that point, I had to do what my brother, um, who's a crime writer had, had told me, you have to act like a detective. Um, and what you have to do, if you're gonna look at a crime, particularly a murder, there has to be motive, there has to be means, and there has to be opportunity. And unless you can place somebody having both the motive, the means, and the opportunity, you have to eliminate them as a suspect. So that's essentially what I set out doing. Could you get a conviction? Pardon me? Do you think that you have enough evidence to get a conviction? You know, if it was alive, to the, if she was, if there was, if I could go to court today, um, I think I could get a conviction. The circumstantial evidence is so heavy. I think that the danger to my conviction, if I were also going to be the defense attorney, um, I would point out 
the other people who had motives, even though I don't think they did it and I can't place them at the scene of the crime, they would try to say, well, yeah, this is a case against the person I suspect, but you really haven't ruled out these other people. I think I have, but even I, I would not argue that they did not have the motive for killing her and that some of them had the means of killing her. The opportunity is the key thing. So give me your top five suspects. Top five of suspects are going to be Bertha Burner, her companion and secretary, um, David Starr Jordan, president of the university, Albert Beverly is the butler. There's always the butler. He was somebody who um, was embezzling from her and had left her employee just before the murder. Elizabeth Richmond, who was um, a friend of Beverly's and a maid, also British, and who was with her at the night of the first strychnine poisoning. And Ah Wing, who's a servant who um, had been cheated out of an inheritance promised by her brother and Jane Stamford had not restored it to him, but instead it required that he stay in her service. And she promised he would be remembered in her will, but only if he stayed until she died. Those that, are the top five. That was really a trick question. I was hoping you would say, no, there's not really five. And I could say, oh, well, you've been saying this whole I, time there's so many people the, and you no, have five the, ready to go. You said the top five. <laughs> I no, I know. I know. It's just hilarious because I thought you'd be like, oh, well, there's not really five. There's like two or three. <laughs> yeah, there are five. You've got five ready to go. It's it's unbelievable. It's, uh, I mean, if I'm sure there's one person right now in the world that wants to kill me, but but five. Yeah, no, that, that's one of the things that's shown up in a lot of the reviews. There really were. Nobody um, ever quarrels with me that all these people didn't have reasons to hate her. They all did. Um, and they were, you know, the police looked at them all too. But the police is, you know, as, as the book shows, we're not really interested in solving this crime. Why? Well, because first of all, the, the first police force to, uh, to take it over is going to be Honolulu. Mm -hmm. And Honolulu is not a state, it's a territory, it's very poor. And having a rich woman die there and they're being responsible for the trial is going to be both expensive and put an awful lot of their own reputation on the line. They say she just got here from San Francisco. She was poisoned in San Francisco. This belongs to San Francisco's police. But um, the other reason is, is that they soon found they were up against a private detective agency, which had been hired by the university and hired by the Stanford estate. And that um, detective agency, the Harry Morris Detective Agency, was not hired to solve the crime. It was hired to cover up the crime. And so they went out of their way to start discrediting the Hawaiian Police Department with both him out to lose his job. Um, the person who um, is going to be assigned to the Jane Stanford murder trial is going to be a detective who is um, on the take, he supervises a guy named Kid Kelly who runs the um, crime syndicates in San Francisco. So all of them are quite willing, if somebody is willing to pay to hush this whole thing up, they don't want any more scandals. They're more than willing to take the money. They're more willing to just say, oh, she just died of a heart attack. There's nothing to see here and let it go away. Okay. What was the biggest surprise in researching this book? Well, the biggest surprise to me was when David Starr Jordan, who oversees the cover-up and who hires a doctor in Hawaii who had not been present at the autopsy, had never um, seen Jane Stanford, had never examined her body, and who really knew very little about strychnine poisoning, 
is willing to write David Starr Jordan a report that said she died of a heart attack. And his reason for a heart attack is it said, and I'm not making this up. He said she'd gone on a picnic that day. She'd eaten some soggy gingerbread. The gingerbread had given her gas. The gas had put pressure on her heart and she had had a heart attack. By this theory, a fart could have saved her. So what we're left with is this utterly outlandish theory by a doctor who should have no credibility at all, is immediately attacked by all the doctors who had seen the body and who had done the autopsy. And he is able to take that back to San Francisco and sell it. And he sells it because the police are corrupt. That again, it's one of these things, you don't have to be good to be good at this kind of stuff. You can sell this stuff if you're powerful enough, if you're money enough, and if there's corruption enough. So my surprise is that anybody ever took the story that David Starr Jordan told seriously. That's the most astonishing thing about it. The rich people could get killed. I've seen that happen before. The police are corrupt. I know that. That servants um, often hate the people who employ them. All you have to do is read Agatha Christie novels and you know that. All of these things didn't surprise me, but that you could sell this kind of a report, that surprised me. What's the one question you would like answered that you couldn't get answered? Uh, one thing I'd like answered is, is, you know, as you read the book, the thing that kept me awake was the first poisonings by rat poison. Um, anybody can buy rat poison in a store and they just put a copious amount in it. And that's why it didn't work. They put it in a Poland spring bottle of water. She gagged, she choked, she threw it up and that, that ruined it. But the next poisoning six weeks later, again, it's strychnine, but this time it's pure strychnine, which is very, very difficult to get. And um, this strychnine is given in such an exact dose and placed in such a way that there's a chance that there would have been no trace of it. There's only a tiny trace when they go back to the bottom. So somebody knew exactly what they're doing. So how does somebody go from rat poison in copious amounts to pure strychnine in precise amount? And I think I found that out by finding a pharmacist, but this pharmacist who I could trace for about, um, Six years before that, the moment he's interviewed in the paper by the police, he disappears. I can't find him again. He's gone. Mm. Um, the police say there's nothing to see here. So that guy, that's the guy I'm sure who got the pure strychnine that delivered it over that killed Bertha Burner. The police know he's their guy. And either the police or Kid Kelly have him disappear. He either goes into hiding, which I doubt because once Jane Stanford is dead, there's no reason he shouldn't come back or he is killed. If you think in fact that high officials in, in, um, or people wouldn't be killed by the police in San Francisco, the chief of police vanishes off of a motor launch in San Francisco Bay. Um, a district attorney is gonna be shot in the courtroom by prosecuting fraud in San Francisco. So the missing pharmacist, that's, <laughs> that's, who, we've, that's who we've got to put our efforts on to fund. <laughs> that's crazy. Yep. That's what we got to find. Okay. All right. Well, Richard, this has been good. We'll link to the book in the show notes. Anywhere else you want to have people go to check out more of your work? Um, let me see. Link it to the book. You can link it if I... Okay. You cut out there a bit, but I think you said link to your Stanford University website, which we can do in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for your time today yep. and uh, best of luck on your next project. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. 
If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.